Hey everybody, Alexa here and welcome to Murder in the Mountains. Lisa is our co-host today. Hi guys. And today we are going to jump right in um, to the 70s and 80s in the state of California. Okay, so during that time, the state of California was terrorized by a variety of crimes that was victimizing its communities. And this wasn't just like one location. It was kind of all over the state. On March 19th, 1974, a criminal that would be named the Visalia Ransacker began breaking into the homes of unsuspecting victims. On this particular day, he broke in and stole $50 in coins from a piggy bank, but his MO changed and advanced. He would break in and move things around the house stealing things of lower value when there is clearly like more expensive things there. Surely $50 in piggy bank coins isn't the only thing laying around the house, but you know, whatever. I feel like that's a lot of, um, a lot of weight to be carrying around too. If you're just trying to ransack the place. And did he take the whole piggy bank or what? Or did he bust it? Or did he bust it? Yeah. So a few of his other MOs, included leaving multiple doors or windows open when he left, placing screens from windows on beds before leaving, and also placing items against the door, such as glass bottles, so that he would know if anybody was coming. So it kind of sounds like a lot of psychological, you know, like I was here kind of thing. These crimes continued for years, including multiple ransackings in the same day. On September 11, 1975, the Visalia Ransacker broke into the home of 45-year-old Claude Snelling, who was a journalism professor at a local university. A few months earlier, Claude had caught someone peeping into his daughter's window, and he chased him away. The only description that he uh, was able to give was that he was a white male between 5'10 and 6 feet tall, had collar-length hair, and that he was wearing a dark plaid long-sleeve shirt. The police checked the yard and under the girl's window, and they identified shoe prints as matching those found at other Visalia Ransacker burglaries, so they knew like that they were connected. So Claude was hyper-aware, especially with all the other crimes taking place in the area. In the early hours of September 11th, Claude's 16-year-old daughter woke up to immense pressure on her body and the feeling of being suffocated. She realized that someone was laying on top of her with his right hand covering her nose and mouth and his left hand holding her right arm down. After a struggle and threats to her life, she was dragged out of her room into the back door of her house, which had been left open. Around 2 a.m., Claude was awoken by the commotion and ran out of his room. He saw that his back door was open, so he ran out there and caught a man in a ski mask in the process of kidnapping his 16-year-old daughter. He yelled to the man, like, what are you doing? What are you, like, where are you going with my daughter? And the ransacker let go of the girl, and she fell to the ground. Almost simultaneously, he shot Claude twice, who retreated back into his house. Instead of shooting the girl, he kicked her square in the face two to three times and then took off down her driveway. Claude's wife called 911, but it was too late. He was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. So this was the first time the ransacker just didn't run off with piggy banks, you know, and actually murdered somebody. During the investigation, the police were able to determine that the weapon used to kill Claude was a 38 caliber four-inch barrel revolver. 
This information reminded investigators of a recent Visalia ransack burglary that had taken place less than two weeks before the murder in which a similar gun was stolen. So with this information, they knew that the cases were connected. By the time the Visalia ransacker's crime spree ended in 1976, he was credited with one murder and 120 burglaries. The next criminal that was at large in California during this time was the East Area Rapist. In the Sacramento area between 1976 and 1979, a man began to stalk victims, sometimes for months before breaking into their homes. His victims began as women who were home alone or women who were home alone with their children. However, his MO changed when media began reporting on the fact that he only preyed on women. So I don't know if he was like, I could take a man too, like flexing his muscles or something. Because after that, he began victimizing couples. Was there like a age range or was this all? It was a free for all. Anybody. Yeah. So he would break in through a window or sliding glass door and awaken the victims with a flashlight before threatening them with a gun. He would then bind them with ligatures that he found at the house or occasionally brought with him then blindfold and gag them with towels that he ripped into strips. The female victim was usually forced to tie up her significant other before she was bound. He would then separate the couple, often stacking dishes on the male's back and threatening to kill everyone in the house if he heard them rattle. He would then move the woman to the living room and rape her repeatedly. He would also just like hang out in the house, eating their food, drinking their beer, and just hanging out until he raped the woman again. And I feel like that's just like obviously super invasive because he's breaking into your house, but he's just like hanging out like the person who just attacked you is just making himself at home until he gets the urge to rape you again. And so this whole time, the husband is still bound with the dishes on his back. Yeah, which I mean is also, I mean, that's so stressful because, you know, I mean, and it's hours, hours you have to stay perfectly still. Yeah. And probably hearing what's going on in the other room. Exactly. So on the night of February 2nd, 1978, Brian and Katie Maggiore were walking their dog in the area where the East Area Rapist found his victims. They saw a man fleeing a home and after a confrontation, they fled. But the suspect chased them down and shot them in the street. In June of that year, the police announced that they were confident that the couple had been murdered by the East Area Rapist so that the couple could not identify him. At the end of his reign, the East Area Rapist is believed to have murdered two people and raped 50 women. Our next person that we're going to talk about. And so just, I mean, just think about at this time, there's just people running rampant and you're like, nobody's safe. Because the ransacker is not just ransacking, he's murdering. The rapist isn't just raping, he's murdering. Crazy. So from 1979 to 1986, Southern California was terrorized by someone who is called the original Night Stalker. A name given to him only after Richard Ramirez was given the title the Night Stalker, which we haven't covered, but he's a whole. He's a whole thing. Did you watch the Netflix thing on him? Yeah, it was super freaky. He's like... He's just creepy. He's creepy. Yeah. Gave me nightmares. Definitely need to cover it. (laughs) Did you watch, uh, or do you watch American Horror Story? I did. Not recently. A few seasons back, I think it was like 1984 or something like that was like the theme. 
And like the night, like Richard Ramirez was like a character in that episode. And I had seen that before I watched the documentary. So that's like all I could think about. Oh, no. I think the last one I watched was the hotel one. Okay. So you're a little behind. (laughs) This last season was not good. So I wouldn't even watch it. Okay. So back to the case. The first attack occurred on October 1st, 1979, when the suspect broke into a home and tied up a couple. The couple attempted to escape, uh, and like when the suspect left the room, and as a result, the suspect was like abort mission and fled the couple's home. He didn't even try to like get him. He's just like, I'll just stop while I'm ahead. The suspect was chased by a neighbor who saw what was going on, but he was able to get away. A few months later, on December 30th, 44-year-old Robert Offerman and 35-year-old Deborah Manning were found shot to death in Robert's condo. It was found that Robert's bindings were untied, indicating that he had lunged at his attacker. Paw prints of a large dog were also found at the scene, leading to speculation that the killer may have brought one with him because the victims did not have dogs. And I know I love my dogs. You love your dogs, but you would not bring them with you to murder somebody if you were to murder somebody. Definitely not my dogs. They are complete babies. They're like, mom, stop. Mom, please. Can we just go? Can we? Can we go? Literally like, do you have treats in there? No. All right. All right. Then I'm out. So on March 13th, 1980, the original Night Stalker struck again when he broke into the home of Charlene and Lyman Smith. They had been blugged into death with a log, and Charlene had been raped and tied up with a unique diamond knot. And this knot was also used by the East Area Rapist. Her face says, hmm, since you can't see her face, but I can. I'm just thinking, I mean, there's a connection. There may be a connection. A few months later, on August 19th, newlyweds 24-year-old Keith and 27-year-old Patrice Harrington were found bludgeoned to death in their home. Similar to Charlene Smith, Patrice Harrington was raped. However, the Harringtons were not bound and there was no murder weapon found at the scene. The next attack occurred on February 6, 1981, when 28-year-old Manuela Whithun was raped and murdered in her home. Manuela's body had signs of being tied before she was bludgeoned, but no murder weapon or ligatures were found. And unlike his other, like, recent victims, Manuela was alone at the time of her attack because her husband was hospitalized at the time. Another interesting tidbit is that her TV was found in the backyard, possibly the killer's attempt to make the crime appear like a boxed robbery. But, like, that would have to be real boxed. Like, you're just running out, you drop the TV, and you're like, well, I tried, you know whatever yeah i think it would have it would have been more realistic if they would have like messed it up inside like busted out some windows or something did something right something yeah just come on now so on july 27th 1981 35 year old sherry domingo and 27 year old gregory sanchez became the original night stalkers 10th and 11th murder victims the suspect entered the house through a small bathroom window Gregory had not been bound and was shot in the cheek before he was bludgeoned to death with a garden tool. Sherry was raped and bludgeoned. Bruises on her wrists and ankles showed that she had been tied, but no ligatures were found at this scene. So that was 1981, and the crime stopped for years until 1986. 
On May 4th of that year, 18-year-old Janelle Cruz was found after she was raped and bludgeoned to death in her home while her family was on vacation in Mexico. A pipe wrench missing from her home was thought to be the murder weapon, but it was never found. So as I mentioned, and as Lisa's face showed, there were similarities between the crimes of the Visalia Ransacker, East Area Rapist, and Original Night Stalker. Breaking in, ligatures, raping, murder, diamond knot, you know. So all of these crimes were committed in different jurisdictions, and back then they didn't communicate as well as they do nowadays. And while one Sacramento detective thought the cases were connected, most law enforcement did not. So it wasn't until 2001 that DNA made the connection between the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker. So they knew that they were the same person, but they had no idea who this person was. They ran his DNA through CODIS and all the other things that they can run it through, but it wasn't in there. So they had his DNA, but this guy's DNA had never been collected. Like, but there was no crime. connection to the first guy? That as well. But this, yeah, they just made these two first, and then later they make the connection between all three of them. So they still had no idea who the perpetrator was. All the potential suspects were cleared by DNA, so they were back at square one. That was until 2018 when detectives decided to use a brand new technique. They submitted the killer's DNA to a genealogy website called GEDmatch, when they got a familial hit. So are you familiar with genetic genealogy? Is that like 23andMe? Yeah. So like Ancestry.com, 23andMe. So police could now, like with all this, like all these new companies going on, they can now submit that, like the killer's DNA and see if like they get a hit on his family member. So even if he didn't submit his DNA, if his fourth cousin did or, you know, somebody in his family then they can use that to start narrowing down their suspect pool, which is super cool. Makes sense. So after talking to family members and narrowing down the suspect pool by gender, location, and age, they singled in on a man named Joe D'Angelo. They followed him and obtained his DNA from a discarded napkin. When they compared it to their suspect's DNA, it was an exact match. So a lot of people are like anti-police doing this because they feel like it's an invasion of privacy. And so some like companies, like genealogy companies, make it to where you have to opt in to like be able to have your DNA looked at by law enforcement. But the way, I mean, I get it, I guess. But if you have nothing to hide, why do you care? Agreed. When he was, uh, he was arrested on April 24th, 2018, and was charged with 13 counts of first-degree murder. Unfortunately, he could not be charged with the rapes and burglaries because of the statute of limitations, which we have talked about, and it's stupid. In order to take the death penalty off the table, he pled guilty to all charges and was sentenced to multiple life sentences without parole. How, did you say how old he is at this point? He was in his 70s. Okay. I figured he's up there. So now that we know who Joe D'Angelo is, and he was renamed the Golden State Killer after all the crimes were connected, so he didn't have 
three different names. He is now just known as the Golden State Killer. Let's find out more about him. Let's do it. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was born on November 8th, 1945 in Bath, New York to Kathleen DeGrotte and Joseph James D'Angelo, a sergeant in the United States Army. He had two sisters and a younger brother. According to a relative, when he was a young child, he witnessed his seven-year-old sister get raped by two airmen in a warehouse in West Germany where his family was stationed at the time. There were also accusations of physical abuse by his father. In his teenage years, he began burglarizing homes and torturing animals, but was able to get his GED despite all of his criminal activities. Isn't there another serial killer that kind of has the same background as far as, and maybe we've talked about it on here before, um, like the animal abuse and the like psychological abuse? Well, the animal abuse is like, like super common and one of the things that you like look out for to determine if somebody's going to be a serial killer or a psychopath. Um, I feel like we have, and I can't think of which one because it's just a very common. Is it the Green River Killer, maybe? No, was it? Who was the one? Was it that had their like dream job at like 16? Was it Lizzie Borden? That was Mary Catherine Knight when she worked in a slaughterhouse. Oh, that one. So, yeah, there's like a triad and it's like animal abuse, arson and bedwetting or something like the three things you can look for to determine psychopathy. So after he got his GED in September of 1964, he joined the Navy where he served in the Vietnam War. After that, he began taking classes at a local university And in 1971, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. He then became a police officer in Exeter, California, where he served in the burglary unit from 1973 to 1976 until he moved to Sixers Heights and became a police officer for the Auburn Police Department from 1976 to 1979. Takes one to no one, clearly. Because he, you know, he goes and is, in essence, trying to, quote unquote, prevent exactly the person that he is. Yeah. And I wonder, like, how hard he was trying. And was the Visalia ransacker and stuff, like, was that on his squad's radar? You know, like, are they trying to stop him? You know? So he was fired from the Auburn Police Department after he stole a hammer and dog repellent. I did not know dog repellent was a thing. I've only heard of that for bears. Like for wild dogs? I have no idea. I don't even know where you can buy that. I wonder what it repels them from. Like, is it a noise? Is it a spray? I have no idea, but I need answers. Like, because mine are afraid of... The wind blowing the trees. You're like, can I repel my own dogs? Yeah. Like, please leave me alone. (laughs) So he was a literal police officer while he was committing all of these rapes, murders, and burglaries. Insane. But he never, like, used, you know, how, like, some people will pretend to be a police officer to, like, gain people's trust. He didn't even do that. He was just a straight-up creep who broke into people's houses. 
didn't even like use it as a ruse or anything. So let's also talk about his relationships. So in May of 1970, he became engaged to a nursing student named Bonnie Caldwell, but she broke it off in 1971 after he became manipulative and abusive. So good for you. Noticing those red flags and being like, "Uh uh-uh, not going to do that. After the breakup, he threatened her with a gun in order to force her to marry him, which unsurprisingly, it did not work. Shocking. I know. Yeah. I'm actually surprised. I thought that you were going to say that she felt, actually felt threatened and then just did it. No, she's like, oh, I broke up with you because you're manipulative and abusive. And now you're like pointing a gun at me, forcing me to marry you. I think I made the right decision. Exhibit A. Yeah. Like try to convince me otherwise. Yeah. So in November of 1973, he married Sharon Huddle. In 1980, they purchased a house in Sanctuary Heights, and they had three daughters. The couple separated in 1991, so after 11 years, but did not officially file for divorce until July of 2018, like a few months after he got arrested. And as we have seen before, his wife and children had no idea that any of this was going on, which is hard to believe, because how could you not know? But it happens all the time. You know, like it happened with BTK. And uh, what's his face? Um, Ted Bundy? Um, the guy from the American Murder. Um, Chris Watts. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, But he killed his family, so I feel like that's different. But obviously they didn't see that coming. Like, wasn't a serial killer, but then you look at him and you're thinking, like, there's no way. And I mean, I get, I didn't read anything about like abuse in this relationship, but obviously he abused previous women. Um, But yeah, they all were like, I had no idea. We never even thought that he was the Golden State Killer because who would have thought that, you know? Um, But yeah, like I said, it happens all the time. And I mean, he just completely stopped. Out of the blue, one day. But that is, that's all I got on him. That's the story of Joe D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, who just for decades did his thing, killing people, and then just decided to quit. And probably never would have been identified if it wasn't for the genetic genealogy. Well, essentially got away with it. Because, I mean, at that point, he's old enough. He's lived a good his life. Yeah. So even a life sentence probably won't be that long. Yeah. Um, Also, fun fact, when I was just in California, I was in Visalia and Exeter. Really? That's where they live. My friends. Do they know about the Golden State Killer? They do. Do they tell you about him? Or you're just assuming that they know about him? Well, about the Night Stalker, and now that I know that it's all the same person. Well, the original Night Stalker. Not just the Night Stalker. Well. Because Richard Ramirez was doing the thing in California, too. Just like everybody else. I'm going to assume they know about the Golden State Killer. But on the off chance that they don't, I'll send them this link. There you go. I'm sure they do, too. Just like we would know if something was happening in Georgia. All right. Do you have any other thoughts or comments? No. All right. Everybody could leave a 
comment or review rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at Murder in the Mountains. And we will see you next week for another episode of Murder in the Mountains. See ya. Bye.